1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
1: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. 60-40 portfolio, many of us grew up with that 60% stocks, 40% fixed income to fixed income to maybe, you know, kind of... You know, even out maybe some of the risk here, give you some return. But, man, that did not work this year or is not working this year. Stocks down, you know, 20, 25 percent. The U.S. aggregate, the Bloomberg uh, U.S. aggregate fixed income total return unhedged down 16.8 percent. It is ugly out there, folks. What do you do in the fixed income biz? Let's check in with George Borey, chief investment strategist for fixed income at Allspring Global Investments. George, you guys have fixed income. I mean, does anybody want to talk to you guys at cocktail parties or is it just stay away? What do you do?
3: Yeah, good morning, Paul. Thanks very much. Yeah, I think as you highlight, um, you know, bond investors don't really set up or sign up, I should say, for, uh, for double digit mark to market losses uh, in their portfolio. So it's it's been a very, very challenging year for fixed income. What we tell clients is sort of two things. Number one, You know, the bonds they bought, they they actually are performing as advertised. They're paying the coupons that they were uh, assigned to do. But obviously, you know, sort of two things have happened. Prices have gone up and central banks have moved to become much more hawkish. As a result, bond prices, at least on a mark to market basis, has gone down quite a bit. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that the yield level, the amount at which we can invest today is actually very attractive relative to history, and certainly relative to the current kind of basket of risks we're looking at today. So a 10-year Treasury yields about 4% uh, from 1% last year. A basket of investment-grade bonds yields 6%, and a basket of, say, high-yield bonds yields about 10%. Mm -hmm. And it's the power of compounding. If you can reinvest your money today at those yields, your forward-looking returns are going to look very compelling, and they'll help you claw back some of those mark-to-market losses. They're yeah. not realized until you sell the bonds.
4: Well, George, to your point that you know, if you look at a ten-year Treasury right now yielding about four percent, if you look at a three-month T-bill, uh, it's yielding about the same, if not more. So, in that environment, you just go to the shortest thing possible if the yield level- levels are about the same. Or are you looking at duration here?
3: Well, in the short term, uh, you know, going for that sort of one-year T-bill at, at roughly four to four and a quarter percent, that's not a bad idea. It's a good, safe place to park money. It will sort of generate that yield for the next year. But if you're looking a little bit further out. Inflation is unlikely to stay at these elevated levels. The central banks are moving aggressively to get inflation down. And and the important thing to remember is the Fed has very, very powerful tools. They will get what they want, but it may take some time. So if you're looking, say, 5, 10, or even 30 years out, and some people do look that far out, then that longer duration trade locking in say 4 to 4 and a quarter percent yield today may look very nice 5 years out and so we are adding some of that duration we are looking further out the curve to lock in those longer term yields because we think inflation will come down and yields will start to come down as we sort of move beyond this this spike in inflation
1: George what's uh, your call there at Allspring about This Federal Reserve, it seems like 75 basis points is baked in for the next meeting. After that, how do you think the Federal Reserve will... You know, kind of play.
3: Yeah, that's 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 a that's a great great question, Paul. You know, most people, many people expect the Fed to raise rates another seventy-five basis points. Uh, and the real question is is sort of where are we at the end of the year? They have two more meetings before now and the end of the year. And then importantly, most investors are looking into next year. The market sort of wants to get a sense of where's the terminal rate, where will rates peak. Right now, our view is that the Fed has been very clear. they want to get rates up to about four and a half percent. They've recently reinforced that message. and so you know some folks in the market were expecting higher than that. We are not. We think we get to sort of four and a half percent by the end of the year. That would be another 75 in November, but then start to decelerate that pace. That should allow them. Some time and perhaps a little bit of patience to be able to sort of start to slow their rate of pay of of, of rate uh, their pace of rate tightening. So, four and a half percent is our target for the end of the year. We think they'll likely sit there for an extended period of time that could be six months, nine months, perhaps even a year. It really depends. On how inflation behaves and how the economy behaves. But the expectation for sort of this ongoing rapid fire kind of increase, we think is getting a bit overblown. And we think the Fed actually is starting to gain some room to sort of slow that pace, but then allow markets and allow the economy to adjust as those higher rates take hold.
1: All right, George, great stuff. Really appreciate getting uh, your informed uh, perspective on all things fixed income. Again, a brutal, brutal uh, start to the year 2022 uh, returns like the fixed income world has never seen is what I have been told. George Bory, Chief Inf- uh, Investment Strategist for Fixed Income at Allspring Global Investments.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. more details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com tech sf
1: i want to get right to our next guest the conversation of the morning james dravitas retired admiral u.s navy who's in the navy for like 37 years 15th commander of the u.s european command and nato's 16th supreme allied commander in europe but i know The highlight of his career is that he is a Bloomberg opinion columnist, which means he has to speak with uh, us here at Bloomberg Radio. Admiral, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. So many places to go, but let's start with Ukraine. If I were to war game this out from this point, how would it go? I just don't know how this thing plays out. There's been so many mistakes by Mr. Putin. I just don't know where he goes from here. Well,
5: I'll start with three little words, which are, I don't know. Yep. Nobody does. Um, war is unpredictable. But I'll give you my estimate, having watched it closely, having been the NATO commander, having visited Ukraine many, many times. Um, these are very tough people on both sides of that firing line, by the way, both yep. Russians and Ukrainians. Um, so don't look for any sudden give um, out of either party here. So here's what I think will happen. Over the coming uh, weeks, There is going to be a a significant attack on the city of Kherson, which is a major uh, Ukrainian city. It's the gateway to Crimea. And that will be where I would focus um, investors, analysts, watch what happens in Kherson. If the uh, Ukrainians really run the table, push the Russians out, they're going to have strong momentum Um, On the other hand, if the Russians can bog down the Ukrainian advance, that will also tell us something. So all of that, Paul, will play itself out over the next month or so. Then we're going to be deep in the guts of winter. And hopefully, as we come out of winter, both sides will have been exhausted and be prepared to at least begin a negotiation so we can start to find a way out of this situation.
4: Well, in the guts of winter, I want to talk about the dollar and cents of what war actually costs, because, you know, there's a story on the terminal today, uh, the Ukrainian president saying that his government needs $17 billion in immediate financing. That's immediate. Uh, Whereas you have the EU on the other side saying that the EU is going to develop funding for around 18 billion euros, just under $18 billion uh, for next year. So there's a real mismatch here. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not you're worried that the political will to fund Ukraine might fade as we get into those winter months?
5: I think the political will will remain, but it's going to be more of a negotiation, not a simple Ukraine says we need X and we hand them X. Um, I think it's going to be more a situation of Ukraine says we need X and we're going to say eh, X sounds like a lot. How about Y plus some longer term Z and maybe some additional uh, A, B, and C in terms of weapons? So, uh, you know, we we talk a lot in private equity. I'm the vice chairman of the Carlyle Group. We talk a lot about burn rates. And on Putin's side, the burn rate is pretty clear. It's the, the killed in action, the equipment destroyed. He has a very high burn rate. The burn rate on the Ukrainians is what you just put your finger on, Katie. It's the patience, the resources, the dollars, the euros, the weapons of the West. I think that tap is not going to be suddenly shut off, but I think it's going to be more of a negotiation between the Ukrainians and the West going forward.
1: Admiral, I want to take you to the other side of the globe, to China. Um, They just finished up their party congress and a strengthened Xi and potentially presenting much more risk uh, to the global environment here. How do you... What are your takeaways from what we've learned about China over the last couple of weeks?
5: Well, first and foremost, we've seen, as you point out correctly, uh, Paul, we've seen the emergence of, of Xi as a as a pantheon leader in China. He's now up there with Mao and Deng, and he is someone who is going to be with us for a while. He appears to be very healthy. He's late 60s, early 70s. He is in complete control, and if you doubt me at all, go back and review the video of the previous leader of that. China, Hu Jintao, being dragged out. It looks like a scene from George Orwell. So clearly, she is in uh, full charge of China. I'll give you two things to focus on as investors. One is he has remained adamant that he will continue this zero-COVID policy that has real implications for the chinese economy obviously which then has a knock on effect globally watch to see if now that he's installed and is in full control might he be willing to crack open that covid policy a little bit and secondly taiwan in his speeches uh, as part of this 20th party congress where he was just anointed he talked quite aggressively about the long term play on taiwan but my takeaway is Don't look for a military move there for the next three to five years. He's not ready to go there. He's watching the debacle in the Ukraine. He has uncertainties and doubts about his own military, about the Taiwanese. So I think that uh, those two are going to be indicators to watch over the next few weeks.
4: I also want to talk about a Bloomberg opinion column you wrote last week, the headline of which is NATO's nuclear drills are a risk worth taking. Of course, you're talking about uh, the round of exercises that started from NATO in Western Europe last week. As you point out, uh, it's a pretty fraught time in Russian relations, to say the least. But talk me through that argument and whether we should expect more of these drills.
5: Sure. Um, Let's start with the predicate that, Russia has been rattling the nuclear saber almost continuously since this war began. So NATO every year, Katie, and I commanded these drills as Supreme Allied Commander, NATO every year exercises its nuclear capabilities. It's very routine. Um, It involves um, uh, half of the NATO nations. It's confined uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles from the Russian border out in Western Europe, Um, And it's it's a routine business-as-usual exercise. I fear that if NATO were to say, oh, we're really concerned about Russian nuclear threats, so we just won't exercise our capability, I think that sends exactly the wrong signal to Putin. It shows that we're going to back down in the face of his threats, and he'll begin to think, well, maybe they don't really have that kind of capability to counter. So, yes, you're right. It's a fraught time. Uh, You've got to think it through. But on this one, I come down on the side of conducting those exercises, which are, in fact, in progress right now.
1: All right. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and your informed uh, perspective on these global geopolitical issues. Uh, facing the world, facing markets, facing investors. James Stavridis, uh Admiral, United States Navy. Uh, he was with the Navy for 37 years. 15th Commander of the U.S. European Command and NATO's 16th Supreme Allied Commander. Uh, he is a Vice Chairman of Global Affairs at Carlyle Group. And he is a Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, so he is a, a, a busy individual. And we appreciate getting perspective on some of these uh, bigger issues here on terms of geopolitics. We've got Ukraine. We've got China. Uh, lots of areas of concern out there. Still in the thick of earnings season for the global banks. Last week, we had a lot of the U.S. names. Now we're starting to get some of the European names, uh, UBS, for example, which is one of the many firms I can say I once worked at because they were, I used to work at Peyton Weber, which is now part of UBS. There's probably not many financial institutions that aren't of where i used to work for whatever that's worth but ubs beat some some numbers today uh stock up a little bit allison williams she's been covering uh bank stocks for decades on wall street uh she's absolutely one of the leading voices out there and allison um what are you seeing from some of the european banks because i guess my theme has just been i'm not sure how they compete in a global banking business but what are you seeing with the quarterly numbers
6: so for ubs I mean there are a few key positives I think you know the stock is really reacting to trends in the wealth business um so they're more focused on that business they had 19 excuse me 17 billion of wealth inflows a couple billion uh as well in asset management and so given um sort of the tough environment in Asia we think that's impressive and we think that is it indicator that their their business health is strong going forward despite the fact that we have some cyclical pressure in Asia on the capital front capital ratio much bigger than expected um so investors I think are looking for um that capital to be returned, so that's exciting they did up upsize their buyback to five point five billion, but that was had been sort of signaled. And then over to um, the investment bank uh, that we always like to talk about, fixed income trading up over 60%. So that's a small business for them, um, but did very well. They had a record quarter in sort of uh, derivatives on uh, currencies and rates, which is where we're seeing all the strengths. On the negative side of things, equity trading worse than expected. So that's more negative for them because that's a bigger part of their business. And those fees, um, like we've seen at the banks all quarter, week, uh, The one thing that, uh, the one place where UBS is benefiting and they are competing, Asia. Asia IPOs have been sort of the sole um, bright spot in the IPO market, and UBS um, getting some benefit from that. Their fees were still down, but they did get some benefit there.
4: And so, Allison, I want to go back to last week and to U.S bank earnings, because this isn't a space I follow too closely, but I do at least four times a year. And what stuck out to (laughs) me was uh, the fact that net interest income absolutely on fire. Uh, Bloomberg's Lisa Bromowitz had a great tweet, which really I've been thinking about since, that uh, if you think about the pressure on the big banks to pass on the higher interest rates to consumers hasn't really amounted in much last week. I know that the big bank CEOs went in front of Congress uh, in the past month or so and said that they would do that. It hasn't seemed to happen yet. When would you expect to see that?
6: So they're passing it on in specific products and businesses. So for example, um, the wealth business is an area where they are passing on those increases. Um, other areas include uh, the commercial banking business. So you are seeing it um, in some areas, but you know, keep in mind there's been a lot of changes, including overdraft in the, for the U.S. banks, um, where um, they've largely eliminated those fees. So in a way, that's giving the customer some some economics, although not necessarily interest rates. Um, but I would say that in general, the the costs on those sort of smaller accounts continue to be low. Keep in mind, we're coming from a, like an incredibly low interest rate environment. Um, and so I think as you know things are normalizing a bit there, UBS uh, did see some benefit from the net interest income line, uh, similar to the U.S. banks, where the fourth quarter is going up and 2023 um, looks to be higher.
1: So, Alison, we're going to hear from Deutsche Bank. I guess Tomorrow, I mean, this is way back in decades ago, I wrote a paper saying, you know, predicting some of the big, big who are going to be the, the leaders in financial services, you know, in the 21st century. And Deutsche Bank was one of my names, but it hasn't worked out that way. What do we do with Deutsche Bank? What does Germany do with Deutsche Bank? You have to have a strong Deutsche Bank, don't you?
6: They are um executing on their strategy, and they do have strength in those German markets and in europe and you know their um big restructuring, which took place or I guess their last restructuring took place because there were many, many years of restructuring but you know in twenty nineteen they made the tough decision to get out of equities for the most part, focused on fixed income trading um It took a couple of quarters a couple of years, maybe even for that business to stabilize, but that business is really. Um, what's doing well this year. They also have been hurt by the lower interest rates. Um, you know, we, we've had low interest rates in the U.S., but um, Europe, I think, has it's been even tougher. Yep. And so Deutsche Bank, well, you know, the read across for Deutsche Bank is very positive from the fixed income trading that we've seen at these banks. So we're going to expect them to get the benefit from that as well as from higher rates when they report tomorrow.
4: And Allison, we've said goodbye to the U.S. banks in terms of reporting. Uh, We're getting through the European banks. What has been the biggest standout to you thus far?
6: I mean, the biggest driver has been the net interest income. I mean, the growth is just super strong upside to the fourth quarter you know, banks are sort of varied in terms of their caution or their optimism with regard to um, 2023. And then I I also thought that the most interesting data point on the credit front, because that's, I think, an area where most investors are very uncertain about next year, but Jamie Dimon saying that five to six unemployment is about, you know, a couple of quarters of building Mm -hmm. reserves of six billion. So giving that context, um, because the last cycle we had was the pandemic where it was over $20 billion. Um, next year's estimate is $1 billion. So I think kind of level setting um, the risk there and comparing that to the very strong pre-tax, uh, pre-profit, uh, pre-provision profit right. that we're getting at these banks, I think sort of frames the debate that that is a manageable scenario.
1: All right, great stuff. As always, the Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers everything around the world on the banks, and that's not enough. She's also the co-director of research for the Americas for Bloomberg Intelligence. So she does it all. We appreciate getting some of her time.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: Katie, you know, one of the biggest growth stories of recent time for me on Wall Street, and I've been doing this for 35 years, is ETFs, mm-hmm. right? You know a thing or two about ETFs, don't you?
4: They're the future, they I would are the say. Future. And I say that as someone who covers ETF for print news yep. and also uh, anchor uh, the you ETF show. Me and Matt, he's yep. a little bit MIA for the next couple yes. weeks, but the show will go on tomorrow. Unbelievable
1: growth story, folks. Funds flows. If you want to know where the money's going. Uh, boy, take a look at the ETFs. Let's take a couple of segments here. Let's do two segments, Katie. We'll do a little roundtable talk ETFs, see where the money's going, where the smart money's going, or leaving. Sylvia Jablonski, uh, she joins us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's the CIO at Defiance. They do nothing but ETFs. And then when you think of ETFs, I think of Eric Balchunas. He is the senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He is literally phoning it in from <laughs> Philadelphia, God forbid. He hasn't badged in since last week. I mean, he'll be in tomorrow. Is, will he? Some
4: all right, Eric, yeah. we'll
1: get to you in a second. Sylvia, I asked you earlier off air, but I'd love to just get your thoughts here. This has been a great growth story. ETFs, funds, I mean, just, it just seems like they're just coming right out of mutual funds, right into ETFs. Is there a bare case for the ETF industry that this tremendous funds flows you guys have have in the industry have experienced?
7: Yeah, great question. Great to see you, Paul, in person. Uh, so, what's really interesting about ETF flows this year is that the the flow and pace of people coming into ETFs and coming into the market has only increased. So, we've seen outflows and things like thematics and some of the riskier types of products just as investors have gone risk off. But the good news is that you've seen loads of flows. I think it's the second or highest, second or third highest year ever um, in terms of month month the last couple of months year over year flows into things like value and dividends and utilities so you can see that investors have embraced the product itself and they're just looking for kind of the more defensive part of ETFs themselves but to your question I think if anything it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger the mutual fund the high fee mutual fund is pretty much dying um the Oof. ETF structure well, was such a good
1: business for so long it was for so many of it us. was but
7: it was just too expensive yeah, and you know it doesn't trade intraday there's all these like funky things ETFs are you know transparent sometimes tax efficient vehicles and and people really like them they trade like stocks but they're also evolving so now you see these single stock etfs you see levered etfs you see a specific number of stocks in a basket that make up an etf long short you know thematic so i just think that there are so many different ideas and they're so easy to trade and they're so cheap Um, to put in your portfolio. So I suspect they continue to grow.
4: Yeah, the rise of single stock ETFs raises some existential questions about what exactly an ETF is. But (laughs) I think of defiance, you know, as firmly in the thematic bucket. But when you see the big wave of single stock ETFs that have launched, is that something that
7: tempts you? So you'll see some pretty interesting things coming from us, you know, there okay. there are things like quiet periods and things like that, but you can take a look and see what some of the filings are from the different ETF issuers <laughs> out there. I think what's super interesting about that is, you know, first you have the classic ETF structure in the 1940 Act, and that gives you access to, you know, whatever it might be. Say say a client wants access to electric vehicles and they buy iDrive or one of the EV vehicles. Well, in that ETF, you have the four or five EV companies and then you have loads of companies like IBM Oracle, um, Honeywell and Starbucks that have not I'm kind of making that up but they have nothing to do with EV so there's a lot of filler and what single stocks did is took it to a different place and said well actually the client only wants access to Tesla so let's just beef up their access to Tesla and have a Tesla stock that's levered up and then I can see another world where you can get a couple of stocks that give you discrete access to the names you actually want and remove the filler. So, you know, you'll right. have that broad-based access and you'll be able to really have precise, transparent, pure sector um, access through ETF evolution.
1: All right, folks, I'll tell you, I think the best research out there on the ETF industry and the trends is from our good friend, Eric, about Tunis. Eric, what are you guys working on now? What, what's kind of, when you talk to investors out there, and I know you've got lots of contacts, what's the buzz in the ETF world?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's what Sylvia said. So all the buzz is in the hot sauce lane, uh, which, you know, portfolios are changing. We find that most people now have, say, 80% of their portfolio, the core, we'll call it, is a boring 60-40 cheap Vanguard kind of dish. Then they, but that's pretty boring, and it's got to just sit there and grow like a tree for 30 years. So people are, you know, they get itchy. So what they want to do is decorate that core with, Things that are completely different. Uh, so, you know, thematic ETFs, leverage ETFs, uh, crypto would fit there, ARC would fit there. So, all of the action, interest, and press is going to be on people trying to satisfy the hot sauce lane. So, what you're going to find, and Defiance, I'll speak for them because she can't say it, but they <laughs> filed for an ETF that is leveraged, but actually leverages on an index that has only a concentrated number of stocks. So, it's actually purposely increasing the volatility. We just saw a cannabis ETF go from like 20-something holdings to six. And I call that designing for max pop potential. So <laughs> there's going to be this sort of, I, you know, the fee wars. The fee wars are where the 80% of the portfolio is, but now we're, we're, now we're entering the shiny wars. Which ETF can be the shiniest? And that, it, it seems crazy, but it makes sense. And the shiny, that, that area, that hot sauce area, that is where active is gonna exist, like it or not. I personally think if I'm an active manager, I like it. I wanna reinvent myself as you know, uh, so-and-so's 20 best stocks. That is, I think, the future for active and these trading tool type products uh, that uh, Defiance is uh, serving up, as well as themes and all that stuff. So that is probably, might be one of our like right. top three themes.
1: Yeah, Janice did that uh, a while ago back in Denver, Colorado, 25 years ago. Let's continue this discussion on ETFs. It's a thing. We have a TV show Mondays, 1 p.m., Wall Street time. Katie Greifeld, Matt Miller. That's how big it is. Wednesday
4: this week. Wednesday this week. Okay,
1: (laughs) why not? All right. Sylvia Jablonski, she's the CIO of Defiance. They're in that ETF business. Uh, She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Eric Balchunas, you all know him and love him. Senior ETF analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Eric, I'm going to start with you here. I thought this ETF thing was a scam when I first started following your work, but now you've convinced me it's a real thing. Now I'm at the point where, do you have an argument, Eric, why the mutual fund will not go out of business? I can't think of why anybody would ever buy a mutual fund.
2: Yeah, no, I remember you passing by my desk. uh, (laughs) I'd say once every couple of weeks, I'm just saying, yeah, this ETF thing is a big scam. Uh, Uh, Okay, I was wrong, I was wrong.
4: Sounds like some workplace (laughs) harassment. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) No, he was he was half kidding. Um <laughs> so it was like yeah, but anyway, um look, uh it, it, you're not alone. People didn't really take this seriously, especially uh legacy asset managers. Last year they took in 750 billion or Thanks. yeah, somewhere around there, 850 billion. And so people are even the holdouts like Morgan Stanley and Capital Group are now coming in. So that's a that's a sign that they are going to ultimately have a higher market share than mutual funds. Right now, they make up 25% of the assets that mutual funds have. I see that getting to 60, 70. I do think wow. mutual funds will will have a home. They're good in retirement plans. ETFs lose a lot of their superpowers when you go into the 401k world, because you can get the institutional share class of mutual fund, which is cheap. You don't need to trade it, and tax efficiency is an advantage inside a plan like that, because the ta- taxes are an issue. So uh, I think mutual funds will survive there. And I think for bonds, there's a couple areas in the bond market where I think mutual funds uh could make an argument that they're better because they can buy more illiquid bonds um in a way that etfs can't because the index has to be pretty liquid to create the etf so I think those are two two places where mutual funds will hang around.
4: Well, Eric, it's interesting that you mentioned that because as you and I talk about constantly, if you look at the flows, the magnitude of the flows coming out of bond mutual funds going into bond ETFs is really staggering, a record uh, amount of outflows from bond mutual funds. So I feel like that works against your argument there.
2: Yeah, it does. But there again, but you have to remember, bond mutual funds have $5 trillion bond ETFs have like $1 trillion. So we're still so early in this. I think a lot of, if you want treasuries or you want like aggregate bond exposure, honestly, ETF probably works. But you have to remember, bond managers by, by and large outperform their benchmark at a way higher rates than on the equity side. Like for example, in high yield, 73% of active bond managers um, um, have beaten HYG over 10 years. On the equity side, that number is like 15%. So bond managers i think will for some smart money will will remain right. uh, popular but there will be certainly some money moving over especially money that just wants sort of general bond exposure i think the etf will will win some of those dollars as they are this year
1: hey sylvia give us a sense of kind of who's buying these etfs I, you know i, I think back to retail versus institutional how is that playing out these days how, how is that changing
7: yeah, it's a great question, and I think you know if you looked back about five or six years ago and tried to figure this out, it, it sort of depended on the product. So if you looked at kind of the thematic funds, it was more retail, and the levered funds, it was more retail, and you know the classic Vanguard, BlackRock types of ETFs were more institutional. And now I would say you know both. I mean, you have everything from hedge fund managers that are looking for you know a quick sector exposure and don't want to go buy the 500 stocks, or just looking for a quick hedge for a couple of days might use it for ease mm. of use. Um, you you know some of the ETFs represent these niche sort of categories like whether it's defiance or arc where you're looking at like a 5G or, you know, next generation yep. of technology and things like that. And the ETF is the quickest way to get exposure to that. But it's most certainly, you know, retail um, post-COVID. There's just been a massive inflow of, of funds from millennials and beyond into ETFs, particularly thematic ETFs. And now, you know, institutions have just figured out that they're super cheap and they're super easy to get the exposure that you want for your sector rotation model or whatever it might be. Set it and forget it and, and you know, use that product with great transparency. So it's, mm. it's sort of everyone across the board now.
1: Should have a tv show about it katie
4: you know i was just thinking that paul great <laughs> point. all
7: right
1: real quick uh eric uh, what are you working on what are we going to see from the uh, bloomberg intelligence on the ETH front uh
2: you know that thing i just mentioned back to Janus 20 i'm writing a, uh something about how i think there'll be an influx of personalities and old legacy managers coming out with a Kathy wood version of themselves a concentrated best ideas fund that can complement vanguard i'm also writing about a bond mutual fund that has lost 26% in a month because it has a bunch of illiquid bonds and outflows and how it's a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. If we see something like this happen with the PIMCO fund, this could spell problems for the market and cause chaos. And I think the bond fund market is something to watch because it could make the Fed have to pivot. All
1: right, Eric, good stuff as always. Eric Balchunas, somehow he's built a career and quite a career doing this ETF stuff. Crypto. 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 You do something with crypto, don't you?
4: I do a lot lot with crypto. crypto.
1: You're a crypto person. I mean, all right. Here's Jamie Dimon. Until he buys off on crypto, I'm not sure I'm buying off on crypto.
4: That's your guide. It
1: might be my guide. Okay. But Bloomberg Business Week has bought off. I mean, they didn't just write a story, or a number of stories. They did an entire issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and it's just entitled the Crypto Story. So we paid somebody for that title, but. (laughs) The guy who actually wrote it is Matt Levine, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. One of his two days a week, he, he deigns us with his presence. Matt, 40,000 words for crypto. What's the takeaway? I mean, I'm not sure I can get through 40,000 words, although I'm getting there. You haven't
4: there. read the whole thing yet? Well,
1: oh, I read part of it. I, on the train ride in, I'm I'm maybe a third of the
8: way through. Okay, no, I'll fair. finish
1: it up on the way back. What's the
8: takeaway here? It's buy buy Dogecoin. You buy, Dogecoin. <laughs> buy Dogecoin, okay. Um, no, I mean, like the takeaway is, is, uh, is, is, is sort of middle of the road. Like I find crypto, I think crypto is really interesting. I think it's like building a lot of interesting stuff. I think um, it remains flawed and has not really kind of proven a, a, a like overwhelming change the world case yet. But I think it's changed the world in a lot of small ways that are interesting and that are worth kind of picking through.
4: I like this line. I've already told you this. I like this line in here that, you know, I don't have strong feelings either way about the value of crypto. I like finance. I think it's interesting. If you like finance, crypto is amazing. And you and I have talked about how basically it feels like crypto is creating this parallel financial system that it's Uh, ingesting parts of the traditional finance world. And in a way, it just feels like this grand market structure experiment, which doesn't necessarily have a lot of real world impacts yet.
8: That's the way it feels to me. And that's that's my own bias, which is that I like market structure. But I think if you like market structure, people are doing a lot of interesting things in market structure. And when you think about like who likes market structure, it's like, you know, hedge fund people and high frequency traders. And so one thing that is that is a real kind of achievement of crypto is that it has attracted a lot of people from traditional finance to build what they think is a better financial system. So a lot of that is incremental. But if you build a better way to kind of do trading, then maybe one day you use it to trade stocks or loans or something else. Decentralized finance. What is that? Think- I like centralized
1: finance, like exchanges <laughs> well,
4: and like trading
1: funds, floors. You know, you're yeah, old
8: school. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, decentralized finance is basically the idea that you have smart contracts. You have, like, computer programs that kind of do the work of running an exchange or a lending platform or whatever. So that instead of set, you know, signing a contract and setting up an account at a broker who then sets up an account, you know, has a membership on an exchange where you can trade stocks, everything is kind of an open protocol where you can just kind of, like, go to your computer and trade stocks and... Uh, that creates a lot of opportunities for, among other things, just like uh, doing stuff with less permission. I think that one thing that people in crypto really like is that you don't need to like, sign up a bunch of accounts with big banks yep. to get permission to trade. You can just kind of go onto the, to the open platform and do the same trading as everyone else. So it gives a lot of opportunity for kind of competition and for innovation.
4: So, again, this is a question I've already asked you, but to your point that, I don't know, maybe crypto is able to build a more or add to the efficiency of the existing financial system. Maybe it makes it better somehow. Is that a worthy enough goal? Who would be disappointed if that was the ultimate sort of use case for this entire system that has been built?
8: You know, I think some number of VCs who think that crypto is changing like the sort of like how humans will interact will be disappointed to the extent that their bets don't pay off uh, as much as they want. But I think that like, I, d- I don't know, Like I've spent my whole career in and around finance. Like I think making the financial system better is a totally worthy goal. And I mean, in my day job, I think making the financial system more fun and interesting is a worthy enough goal. So, you know, I'm not one to, to criticize that as a goal. But I do think that like, there are people who whose view of crypto is that it will sort of revolutionize uh, society. It'll it'll sort of increase human freedom. And that would be, you know, if you're like, oh, the hedge funds are a little bit more efficient, that would be a, dis- a disappointing outcome for people who believe in that.
1: I mean, I'm just scrolling through this. It's 40,000. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, there's everything. Awesome graphics. Literally, folks, go to a magazine stand, if you can find a magazine stand, and buy Bloomberg Business Week. It is just ridiculous. They talk, Matt. You cover everything here. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of my questions is because I'm going to walk this over to Jamie Dimon. You know, I'm gonna, he's on Park Avenue. I'll take a, a copy of this Bloomberg Business Week.
8: He'll read it word every word.
1: Are you surprised, or how do you view the fact that Main Street, Main Street, Wall Street, financial services industry may not, hasn't really embraced crypto? Is that a fair statement? And if so, are you surprised that they have not embraced
8: crypto? Um, No, I wouldn't say I'm surprised. I mean, look, I I think there have been tentative steps because, you know, it got a lot of attention. And like, you know, until about a year, until about this year, like crypto kept going up, broadly speaking. And so if you're an asset manager, you're like, that thing that goes up, I want that. So there was some interest. Um, But I'm not that surprised that people haven't embraced it, in part because, you know, there was a a Bloomberg story like yesterday about how uh, investors, we polled investors who said that, more sec enforcement would make them more interested in crypto because basically like it still feels like the wild west it still feels like you're committing a crime when you sort of (laughs) get on a crypto exchange and so i think if you're a sort of conservative asset manager or bank or bank regulator you don't want to get involved in something kind of weird until the regulatory stuff is really figured out, and I think we're but not Gary at a point where it's of out. But Gary Gensler at the
1: FCC he's a crypto dude. I no, think. he's not. He's like he like
8: he's taught crypto. crypto. Okay,
1: he's he taught
4: a, 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 taught a course at MIT. On does the that blockchain. not make him a dude? I think in, that's the
1: whole thing from a Washington he, perspective.
8: Yeah, he's he's not like unknowledgeable about crypto, but he does seem to hate it. Yes, which which <laughs> like those things can easily go together. Um, but like, I don't think that that like, he is not a booster of crypto in any way, and is, and is I think making it difficult for. The american crypto industry to sort of you know do a lot of crypto which i think also uh is an impediment to mainstream finance embracing crypto because like your regulators hate it you know Right.
4: okay 30 seconds what did you learn on your journey
8: what did i learn on my journey? i uh uh i learned about minor extractable maximum extractable value and uh and uh and uh flash bots and just like the number of arbitrages that exist in crypto that are totally different from the arbitrages and complicated trading that exists in traditional finance. They have like a sort of rhyme with traditional finance where you can, uh, you know, you're sort of like exploiting gaps in people's knowledge to make a lot of money, but they're they're different in how they actually work in ways that are very satisfying to finance nerds who want to make a lot of money.
1: <laughs> that's uh, that's how it feels to me. I mean, it, it feels like the wild, wild west, but I'm in, I, I've now come across, I think it's an asset class. I think it's real. I have no idea. I have very little understanding, and I have no idea where it goes, and I feel pretty good about that. Matt Levine. Sorry to
4: say, you can't get it in an ETF yet, though.
1: Okay. Fair enough. Sort of. Matt Levine. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's written a couple words on this whole crypto space. Go out and get your Bloomberg Business Week magazine or get it online. It is definitely worth it. It is the Bible.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller 1973.
1: and I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?